Welcome to OB Wannabes, an educational podcast about obstetrics and gynecology and women's health for medical students and women's healthcare providers. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of OB Wannabes. I'm Cassie. And I'm Shelby. And this week we're going to be talking about endometriosis. So what is endometriosis? I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with hearing about, you know, really painful periods and things like that. But uh, what exactly is it? What causes it? And how do we diagnose and treat it is what we're going to be talking about today. So the clinical definition of endometriosis is the finding of endometrial glands and stroma in extra uterine sites. So outside of the uterus, normally your endometrium is that lining of the uterus, but in endometriosis, you can find these glands and stroma of the endometrium in places um, all over the body. You can find, have them in the ovaries, in the peritoneal cavity, sometimes even in the lungs. Uh, so specifically within endometriosis, there's um, adenomyosis, which is when you have endometria within the myometrium, the muscle layer of the uterus. So these, so there's a few different theories about uh, what causes endometriosis. Samson's theory is the retrograde menstruation theory or the idea that the endometrial tissue passes through the tubes and ends up in the uh, peritoneal cavity. This theory accounts for the high incidence of endometriosis if there's a uterine outflow tract obstruction, like an imperfect hymen. Um, There's also the Halbin theory or for lymphovascular dissemination, which accounts for any uh, endometrium found within the head and chest cavities and places like that. Meyer's theory is the coelomic metaplasia, Uh, or the idea that there's um, totipotent cells in the peritoneal lining that transform into the endometrial cells. And this explains for endometriosis that's found in women who do not have and have never had a uterus. There's also the direct implantation theory, which explains uh, endometrium found uh, within C-section scars and within the episiotomies. But the... They're not really sure exactly what it is that causes it because none of these theories explains all of uh, the in places that you can find the endometrium. So what the running theory is, is that it's most likely a combination of multiple factors. Um, and endometrius can also cause infertility. So uh, within the general population, about five to 15% of women are diagnosed, have been diagnosed with endometriosis. Uh, within those women that are infertile, 20 to 50% have endometriosis. And for women with chronic pelvic pain, about 71 to 87% of women have endometriosis and the average yeah it's pretty prevalent I think um and something that unfortunately as we're going to talk about later is a little harder to diagnose so unfortunately makes it a little tough to get a definitive diagnosis on uh which is exactly why there's about seven to eight years between symptom onset and diagnosis and the average age of diagnosis is about 28 years old So different risk factors that uh, increase your risk for having endometriosis is early menarche before the age of 11. Um, If you're in the age of reproduction, so that usually they, uh, that's about 15 to 44 years old. Uh, If you have never had kids, uh, you've never been pregnant and uh, endometriosis can actually improve during and after pregnancy. And if you have a family history of endometriosis, so women who have a first degree relative that have endometriosis have a seven to 10 times increased risk of having endometriosis themselves. That's interesting. I didn't realize that there was a family history component, Um, but it makes sense. (laughs) 
Um, okay, so what are the symptoms that we would look out for that would make us go looking for endometriosis? Um, obviously, the one we hear about the most often is abdominal and pelvic pain. Um, and this can be associated with someone's period, so dysmenorrhea, or it can be constant, you know, um, regardless of where they are in their cycle. Um, they might also have uh, heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, so those are definitely the three most common symptoms. Um, but there are studies that um, have supported a what they call a visceral syndrome um, that shows uh, seven common symptoms associated with um, with endometriosis. Um, so that would include the abdominal pain without relation to menstruation, um, pain during urination or dysuria, pain during defecation or dyskesia. Um, and these two make sense to me if you think about where the endometrial implants would occur in the pelvis. Um, so you can have endo endometrium growing in the um, pouch of Douglas behind the uterus um, in front of the rectum. So someone could have pain when they go to the bathroom, uh, when they defecate, <laughs> or um, it can implant between the uterus and the bladder. And so again, if you have endometrium, you know, on the bladder, on the surface of it, um, that can make peeing painful. Um, some other symptoms that are included in this visceral syndrome include constipation and diarrhea, irregular bleeding, so bleeding between periods, nausea or vomiting, and even um, feeling tired or having a lack of energy. Um, another thing that I forgot to mention is um, pain with sex. This is also a common symptom uh, with endometriosis. Uh, medically, we call that dyspareunia. Um, someone who develops an endometrioma, which is a cyst that most commonly grows on the ovary, but can be in other parts of the abdominal cavity um, that is made up of endometrial tissue. Um, these can get big enough where someone can actually have mass effect. So if you think about um, something large and maybe dense growing in the pelvic cavity, it can push on the um, surrounding structures. So someone can have urinary urgency from uh, the endometrioma pushing on the bladder. They can have pain and a feeling of pressure. Um, sometimes I think they can even have um, urinary hesitancy if it's, you know, uh, obstructing the ureter. Um, so someone could have a lot of symptoms uh, from endometriosis that make their day-to-day -day life uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, usually before med school and everything, I didn't really I would only think of endometriosis as, you know, um, pain associated with the menses outside of the uterine cavity. Um, but it's, I think all those other symptoms, pain not necessarily related to menstruation and all these other symptoms that are associated with it. Um, and like we talked about in an earlier episode, if you think that the pain that you're having with your uh, menses or uh, any other uh, pelvic pain that you're having is not normal, or you think that maybe you should ask a question about it, you should ask, definitely ask your doctor um, to kind of see what's going on and they can help you figure that out because maybe it is just your normal pain for menstruation, but maybe it could be something else like endometriosis and there's a way to um, help decrease that pain and treat that. Um, so if you uh, or your doctor think that you have endometriosis, how is it then diagnosed? Um, so there's a few different methods. Uh, you can do physical exam and you can feel um, 
nodularity around the uterus and the um, sacrum usually felt best with a um, the rect rectovaginal exam. Um, they can, there can be tenderness and nodules in the cul-de-sac or that area is, uh, you know, behind the uterus and in front of the uterus and in those areas. Uh, if the uterus can be fixed, uh, so it's immobile on exam. So when you're doing, you know, a bimanual exam and palpating, the uterus isn't really moving uh, or any of those structures around that area in the pelvis. You can also have an adnexal mass or in that uh, region around your ovaries. Um, and then specifically for adenomyosis or when you have those endometrial implants within the muscle layer of the, similar to your endometrium lining in the uterus are affected by hormonal changes. So when it's time for the menses uh, and the uterine lining is going to shed, the endometrial glands and stroma outside of the uterus are also responding to those hormonal changes. And this leads to a lot of inflammation. Uh, uterus, then it's associated with what's called a boggy uterus. So the uterus doesn't feel um, firm like it should. When you are looking at it in your, uh, you can also do ultrasounds um, and kind of look that way and see if you find any of those endometriomas or any um, abnormal tissues in there. Uh, but the gold standard is going to be a laparoscopy. So actually going in and looking at the tissue and visualizing it and doing a biopsy. So upon visualization, you might see powder burn lesions or these kind of gray brown lesions. Uh, there could be these mulberry lesions, which are dark red, or the chocolate cyst, which is mostly associated with the endometriomas. And then when you biopsy a suspected lesion, you need two out of three on path, uh, the histopathology to make, confirm your diagnosis. So you need to have, um, there's endometrial epithelium, which is the glands, um, endometrial stroma, and the third thing is going to be the hemocytorin-laden macrophages. So those are the macrophages that have been eating up, you know, um, red blood cells. And so the color of them will look a little different. And then specifically for adenomyosis, it's usually only confirmed after a hysterectomy because you'll need to visualize and biopsy the myometrium uh, of the uterus. So once we've diagnosed it, Shelby, what can we do to treat it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if someone's already going in for a diagnostic laparoscopy, um, it's suggested that, that if they come across these um, endometriosis um, type lesions, uh, that they should be treated during that surgery if, if possible. Um, so this would include um, excising, so cutting out or burning off these lesions. Um, and that can be done, if they burn them off, this can be done with, you know, any sort of energy source, um, harmonic, uh, I don't know, there's all these different tools that we use in surgery. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, I don't really know how they work. But basically, if you can burn the lesion off, um, you can decrease, you know, the progression of, you know, that area um, and also improve uh, their endometriosis associated symptoms. Um, they can also um, remove some of the scar tissue while they're in there and some of the adhesions because um, uh, when there's inflammation in the peritoneal cavity, things can start to stick together, can kind of distort the pelvic organs and the way that they're supposed to sit. And that can be a potential cause of pain. Um, if there's endometriomas, so again, those chocolate cysts, which um, can confirm from seeing them in surgery really do look like chocolate cysts, which is gross. I don't know why we associate everything with food and medicine, <laughs> but um, uh, removing these, you know, obviously decreases um, their growth. 
Uh, it can improve uh, future fertility outcomes um, by removing uh, this endometrioma and uh, endometriosis lesions. Um, so there's definitely a lot of benefits to surgical intervention. Um, but we also have to think about, you know, what are some of the risks associated with, uh, you know, surgical cystectomy, surgical intervention. Um, there is an increased risk of um, decreasing the ovarian reserve, um, especially if you're directly treating um, a lesion that's on the ovary. Um, as you can imagine, um, because you're taking a cyst off of the ovary, you could damage the ovarian tissue. Um, so we don't typically, you know, I was talking about the burning off of lesions. We don't typically ablate on the ovary. Uh, you know, it's okay on other parts, uh, other pelvic organs, but we want to avoid that on the actual ovary. Um, usually they'll just excise the lesion. Um, so there is, there is a risk that, you know, you could damage the ovary where it's not able to produce as many follicles. Um, and there are, there are times when um, someone might not be able to, sorry, I had an issue with my computer. Okay. Um, there's also um, a risk that uh, if the cyst is large enough, you might not be able to remove it without removing that ovary. Um, so again, I mean, someone can still get pregnant if they only have one ovary, but it can, you know, decrease their ovarian reserve, obviously. Um, but there are um, a lot of risks as well to choosing the more conservative option of uh, just watching and waiting or observation. Um, if you don't pursue surgery, there's a risk of um, ovarian torsion. If the cyst gets big enough, it can kind of add weight to the ovary and cause the um, ovary to twist on its own blood supply. And that's a, uh, an emergency that would require surgery. Um, there's also risk of the cyst rupturing eventually. Um, there's also a, a very small risk of an endometrioma um, transforming into a malignancy, which I didn't know until I uh, was doing a little bit of reading today on this topic. Um, most commonly, it can cause clear cell or endometrioid ovarian uh, cancer. Um, so there are benefits to, you know, surgical intervention when it comes to endometriosis. It gives you a definitive diagnosis. Um, you can, you know, do a biopsy and rule out malignancy. Um, it prevents disease progression. Um, and it also improve, can improve pregnancy rates. Um, so those are some of the things to consider and discuss uh, with a patient that's, um, you know, going to be treated for endometriosis. Um, and then <clears throat> how do we treat the um, pain associated with endometriosis? Uh, so, you know, whether or not someone pursues surgery. Um, the mainstay of treatment would be NSAIDs. Um, so, you know, ibuprofen. Um, to improve their pain and the inflammation associated uh, with, um, you know, endometriosis um, during their periods and hormonal contraceptives. So anything that can decrease the amount that these endometrial um, implants are growing um, will be helpful. Um, so usually they, the first line is combined estrogen, progestin, um, birth control pills, I think this is mainly because they are low cost and widely available. 
um, it doesn't necessarily um, mean that they're the most effective for, um, for treating endometriosis. Uh, you can also consider the patch or the ring, uh, which again is combined hormonal um, contraception. And we'll be going into depth about these um, on our next episode. <laughs> so I won't go into too much detail on how all of these um, contraception options work. Um, some other options are progestin only um, pills. You can also do the depo shot, Nexplanon, IUD. Um, and then maybe second line, uh, someone might consider GnRH analogs. Um, the most commonly known is Lupron or Luprolide. Um, this can put someone in a menopause-like state that's temporary, but you know might be uncomfortable. It can cause hot flashes and um, mood swings, all that fun stuff. <laughs> um, some, some less common interventions uh, for uh, hormonal treatment include danazole, which is a LH inhibitor and aromatase inhibitors, um, which are only used for severe refractory pain. So, you know, they have really bad uh, pelvic pain that's not resolving with the other treatments. Um, we, we leave this one for last because it can increase bone loss and also cause um, follicular cysts on the ovary. So I feel like, you know, pros and cons, you're already forming cysts in endometriosis and now you're increasing the risk of ovarian cysts. Um, so it's definitely not the most ideal of treatments. Um, and then, so, so far I've covered, you know, how do we treat um, the actual lesions and the endometriomas uh, that are present in the pelvis? How do we treat pain? And then lastly, I'll cover how do we treat infertility? Um, so actually in the early stages of endometriosis, um, it hasn't been shown to um, necessarily decrease um, fertility rates, you know, compared to people who don't have endometriosis. Um, but if people are having issues when they have a stage one or stage two endometriosis, um, some theories on why this would um, affect their ability to get pregnant include um, there's a lot of inflammatory cytokines that are released um, that prevent, you know, sperm from moving correctly from the fallopian tube cilia from um, moving and, you know, pushing the egg down the fallopian tube into the, into the uterine cavity. Um, but by and large, if someone has a stage three or a stage four endometriosis, which are considered moderate or severe respectively, um, that's usually when women have a much harder time getting pregnant. And um, this is believed to be because the pelvic anatomy gets distorted. There's a lot of adhesions and scarring. And so it's difficult, you know, for all of the machinery that we need to get pregnant to work properly. And that's everything from the fallopian tubes to, you know, um, the myometrium contracting correctly, um, the ability to implant the fertilized egg into the endometrial lining. Um, so typically if someone has endometriosis and um, they've failed a six month trial of timed um, intercourse, you know, to get pregnant, then um, we'll refer them to uh, probably a, um, why am I blanking on the name? REI. <laughs> REI. <laughs> Cassie and I both have an REI rotation coming up in uh, May uh, together, which will be mm -hmm. really cool. 
Um, so we can talk all about that. But um, at that point, they can consider um, ovulation induction, um, which is usually done with clomiphene. Uh, if that's not working or if it seems like that's not going to be effective, then they can go straight to assisted reproductive technology, which can include intrauterine insemination or IUI and IVF in vitro fertilization. Um, I won't go more into depth uh, into those options um, today, but uh, there are options, you know, if uh, treating the endometriosis um, and, you know, trying to just have uh, timed intercourse isn't working for uh, a patient. So, yeah. Those are kind of our treatment options. Yeah, it's really cool. I know, um, like we said earlier, the di- the gold standard for diagnosis is going to be that laparoscopy to biopsy the tissue and really visualize it and confirm it. But uh, obviously, if you're not 100% certain, you don't want to jump straight to let's have surgery uh, for your uh, pelvic pain or what, um, whatever pain or discomfort that you're experiencing. So I think it's really great that there's so many options to work towards treating that and kind of can help guide to see if that is definitely still something that's on your differential as a diagnosis. Um, If it's like, if you are using um, your NSAIDs or um, some OCPs and that's helping, then, you know, there's definitely uh, more likely that it's going to be endometriosis. Not that if you use them and it doesn't help, it's not, but it can kind of help with that to avoid surgical options, Mm -hmm. uh, especially early on. Yeah, and I forgot to mention, um, especially with uh, endometriomas, if you're considering whether or not to recommend a um, surgical cystectomy, um, typically if someone's asymptomatic and the cyst is less than five centimeters, they'll just watch and wait. Um, so just because you're, you might be forming a endometrioma doesn't mean you have to have surgery. Um, and there's a greater risk of depleting the ovarian reserve with a cystectomy if you have to treat both sides. So if there's a cyst on both ovaries um, or if it's a repeat of the procedure. So typically they'll only recommend a primary um, cystectomy. And then when they are thinking about doing it again, there's a lot more risk involved that it'll affect their fertility down the road. Um mm-hmm. And if someone, you know, is in their late 30s and this is still a problem, you know, they're still having really painful periods and everything, and they don't think that they want to have kids anymore, I said late 30s, but also in their 40s, um, uh, they can opt for a elective hysterectomy and that will solve the issue. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, really great. And on that note, like, obviously, when you're having, if you have the hysterectomy and BSO, usually that puts you into... Uh, basically automatic menopause at that point Mm -hmm. using hormone replacement if you're younger uh, as needed. So usually uh, with endometriosis, after menopause, usually your symptoms kind of decrease or dissipate and go away. Uh, Not always, but it's definitely, you're less likely to have those symptoms once you've reached menopause. So Mm -hmm. if you're getting your diagnosis or this is something that's coming up, as you mentioned, a lot later down the road, you can do your hysterectomy or if you're okay waiting until menopause or you're really close and it's not that bad that you don't want to just wait and not have an intervention, that's always something that you can do too and see if it resolves at that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we covered this. I feel like we both learned a little bit more about endometriosis and I know that 
there's commercials now about it and people have mm-hmm. heard about it a little bit more, but it's still, you know, not necessarily common knowledge. Um, so yeah, like Cassie said, if you're having painful periods, you know, it's not just you, um, and you know, talk to your doctor about it. Yeah. It's, it's good to know. I know again, don't trust the internet with everything that you hear. Uh, make sure you're talking to your doctor to see what's going on, but yeah, I'm glad that we got to talk about this and learn some more about it. Cause I know I have friends who have endometriosis or are at increased risk because they have family members. So it's very prevalent. Absolutely. All righty. Well, next, as Shelby mentioned earlier, next week, we're going to be starting a three-part series talking about contraception and the different forms of contraception. So next week, we're going to be going over just a general overview to talk about what contraception is and the different types of contraception that are out there. So we hope to see you next week. We are third-year medical students at Toro University of Nevada College of Osteopathic Medicine, and we are student members of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and ACUG, the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The views expressed in this episode are not representative of any of these organizations, and this podcast is not affiliated or associated with any of these organizations.